Welcome to the Spirituality for Normal People podcast. Of course, there aren't really any normal people, but every person has a spirituality, whether plumbers or politicians, firefighters or farmers, entrepreneurs or entertainers. I'm Matthew Bruff, pastor and author, bringing you tips, guidance, and practical advice for how to live out and keep the life in your relationship with God. You can find show notes, books, and more at spiritualityfornormalpeople.com. This is episode 31 of the Spirituality for Normal People podcast, and this is such a fun episode. I don't know how I planned this. I didn't actually plan it, but episode 31 is coming out on October the 31st, and it is exactly 500 years to the beginning of the Reformation, and uh, well, as legend has it, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg on October 31st, 500 years ago today. And uh, although a friend at church uh, the other day uh, told me she was listening to CBC Radio and they were doing a whole thing about the Reformation, uh, being the Reformation at 500, and uh, they had some experts on there saying he actually may have uh, pasted the 95 theses to the door in the church in Wittenberg <laughs> and not nailed it. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. She was, she was saying she was kind of um, thought it was funny to imagine Martin Luther doing decoupage on the Wittenberg door, uh, pasting his uh, statements of protest to start off the Reformation. Anyway, today we have a really cool interview with Bruce Gordon. And Bruce is the professor of ecclesiastical history at Yale Divinity School. Uh, I thought it'd be so neat to have uh, an expert in the Reformation come on and talk about the Reformation on this day. I know so many people are celebrating Halloween, but of course we're celebration celebrating the Reformation, right? Uh, and yeah, so we talk about a whole bunch of stuff in this. Um, in particular, we talk about spirituality and sort of the meaning and importance of spirituality for those first reformers. So we talk about Martin Luther and John Calvin and others and what their practice of faith was really like and what we might be able to learn from what happened during the Reformation and how that might impact our spirituality today. So it's a really interesting conversation. And um, and Bruce is just uh, fantastic and was so generous uh, to give the time to uh, spend a bunch of time talking about some of these things. Uh, listen to the end um, because there's some really great stuff at the end. As usual, I always say listen to the end, but this one, I really mean it because when we get there, you get to learn a little bit about Bruce's connection to Winnipeg, including maybe which hockey team he supports. Um but there's also some cool stuff at the end about John Calvin and uh, his what his gift is to our understanding of God and spirituality in general. Uh, also, some interesting stuff I didn't know about Calvin as well. Um, I was tempted to just let it come out in the interview, but I'll just give you a sneak peek. One of the things that, uh, that Bruce uh, shares about is how uh, when Calvin was in Geneva... Uh, the majority of the population or a large percentage of the population in Geneva when he was doing the bulk of his preaching and his work as a pastor, the, the majority of the population were actually refugees who were fleeing from France to the Geneva. So they were all people, many people who'd been displaced. And he just makes a really great point that 
Calvin's preaching and his thinking and his and his central message may have something to tell us uh, in today's world when we're trying to think through how do we respond to people who have been displaced and people who have found themselves to be refugees and what word might Calvin have to have said back in his time that we might be able to look at in our own time. And I just thought that was kind of an interesting thing that I had never heard of or thought about before. Um, so I think you're going to really like this interview. Um, just uh, the wealth of knowledge and about our spiritual and history and traditions and just kind of understand where some of that stuff came from and sort of what the gift of the Reformation might have been. And also, what are some of the things that may have been lost in the Reformation that need to be regained or have been regained? Uh, and yeah, Bruce just has a great number of things to reflect about uh, in this interview. So I will uh, let you take a listen to that. Also, just to remind you, if you're a regular listener and you're enjoying these podcasts, um, make sure you subscribe in iTunes or uh, through Google or however you are listening to this uh, through Stitcher. Um, you can do that by going to spiritualityfornormalpeople.com and just on any episode, there's links at the top for subscribing. You just click on those. You can also, if you go into iTunes through those links, you can leave a review for the podcast and that means a ton to me and it also allows other listeners to be able to find the podcast a little more easily in the iTunes directory. So I really appreciate that. You are also able to leave a financial contribution to help pay for things like hosting and equipment for the podcast so that this can keep going. We're about six months into this little adventure, so uh, it would just be great if uh, you're able to, to give an amount. It's now set to do monthly amounts, so you can sponsor for, I think, as little as $2 a month, which is pretty low, um, but I but would be very welcomed. Uh, so you could do that through the links near the bottom of almost any episode. So today's episode is just spiritualityfornormalpeople.com slash Bruce. Pretty easy to remember. B-R-U-C-E. Uh, so yeah, I hope you love this interview. I'm sure you're going to. And happy Reformation Day. Today on the podcast, I have Bruce Gordon, and Bruce is the Professor of Ecclesiastical History at Yale Divinity School. Welcome, Bruce. It's great to have Thank you, you on. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to have you on today because this podcast episode is going out on October the 31st, oh. mm-hmm. uh, 2017, mm-hmm. which, uh, which is a really important day. And it's this is why I wanted day. somebody who is an expert in why <laughs> this is an important day. So maybe sure. you can explain why that's so important and why Christians should know about October 31st, other than well, it being Halloween, you know? It, well, yes, it's, it's, uh, this year it's remarkable for something else. And that is, uh, October 31st, 1517, uh, a rather obscure uh, professor of Bible in the German city of Wittenberg, uh, who uh, posted on the door of the castle church uh, his 95 theses, uh, in which he, amongst other things, protested the sale of indulgences, uh, which was a widespread practice, uh, which he objected to uh, seriously. Uh, these 95 theses, which were posted in Latin uh, originally, but then were uh, quickly translated into German, uh, became a sensation. And this obscure um, uh, professor and former monk uh, became a celebrity, both uh, a hero and notorious, um, on account of his protest against the church. Uh, and uh, this year it's being marked as the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. 
Right. So that's Martin Luther we're talking about. Yes, course. Martin Luther. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It um, is Martin, indeed Martin Luther. Yeah. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, um, because this podcast is about spirituality and about spiritual practices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would love to talk to you a bit about what were some of the spiritual practices of the reformers um, if if we can get at that, I think they did write about th- that some um, from my limited knowledge. Sure. Um, sort of how did they practice their piety? Because I think piety might have been the word that they they may have used more. We don't yes. use that word so much today anymore. Yes. Um, yes. But but maybe that's a way of asking it: is how did they practice their piety, and what might we learn from that? And that's absolutely right. Piety was a key word from the the Latin uh, pietas. Uh, um, it's a word that uh, doesn't have a lot of resonance with us now, and in fact, often has, is used in a, a negative way, as you, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but for Martin Luther, uh, the the man who you know started it all in, in 1517, uh, was a former monk, uh, had been an Augustinian monk, which was a very uh, uh, severe order in many ways. And he had been uh, an extremely ascetic person. He had Mm -hmm. been involved in uh, constant prayer, following the offices of the uh, monastic order. And what, you know, he referred to as mortification of the body, abstaining from uh, all manner of things. This, uh, in some ways, stayed with him all his life. The rigors of the monastic life of constant prayer throughout the day, uh, rising early to pray, praying with his uh, family. Uh, So prayer is at the absolute heart of the uh, spiritual practices of all the reformers. I can think of John Calvin, I can think of Ulrich Zwingli, I can think of of many others, including some uh, significant female figures uh, from the Reformation, all of whom emphasized a disciplined life of prayer, uh, marking in almost in a way like the monasteries did, the hours of the day, uh, Mm -hmm. prayer first thing in the morning, prayer with all meals, prayer at midday, prayer uh, at, the, at the end of the day. Uh, and they all wrote extensively uh, about uh, prayer. Um, and uh, so this is, this is one aspect of their uh, spiritual lives. But it's sometimes thought about uh, Protestants that they emphasize the, the spiritual and, and less of the sort of activity in the world, good works, as you might refer to them. But for Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and others, the doing of charitable works was absolutely central to the Christian life. It was part of piety. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, prayer was, you know, expressed in daily efforts to care for the poor, uh, looking after one's family, charitable actions uh, for the community. Uh, all of these were seen as part of the discipline of, of the Christian life. Uh, so both, and, and, and so there are echoes of the monastic background from which many of them came, uh, that the link between prayer and work in the world um, and, and service to the community and uh, family life all of these were seen as as part of of you know the life of of piety, which was of honoring God through lives of of reverence, uh, service, and obedience. Uh, again, some of the terms that uh, are not perhaps used so much uh, anymore, but very they're absolutely central to their uh, vocabulary of of the spiritual life. Yeah, I think that's that's something that maybe a lot of people don't necessarily realize. I think when they think about the Reformation, um, they're they're thinking sometimes. Well, 
how many people are sitting around thinking about the Reformation on a daily basis. <laughs> but but I think when they look back at that time, they think what happened there was we tossed out a whole bunch of stuff mm-hmm. and we just got back to the Bible. And mm-hmm. um, but but obviously far more is going on. Um, but I think maybe people don't necessarily realize that there was there was a lot carried forward by the reformers, like you're saying, a lot of their their spiritual life, like what they actually did to connect with God and live their life as a Christian, a lot of that continued. Like there wasn't, they didn't break from, from their piety. They, they continued doing that. Um, And and I think that's good to hear that. Yeah. I mean, they, they, obviously there were significant breaks, Uh, you know, they moved away from uh, the veneration of saints, uh, relics, uh, many of those things that, uh, 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 shaped late medieval worship and and piety. Uh, there was a profound rejection of of many aspects of what they thought of as idolatrous practices and named as idolatrous practices. In the case of the Reformed tradition, the removal of art and statues um, from the churches and churches being whitewashed so that they so that one would focus on the word uh, uh, heard and and preached. But nevertheless, the emphasis on church. Uh, on worship, on liturgy, singing, uh, as all parts of the uh, Christian life. I mean, this is something one needs to add to prayer and and charitable living. It was, of course, the centrality of, of worship. In that sense, you know, there is continuity with the uh, pre-Reformation world that, you know, they, they would go to uh, church uh, regularly, often several times a week, um, but the type of the service would would you know would be different now in in the Reformation, uh, particularly in the Lutheran and Reformed and what are often referred to as the more radical traditions. The word and sacrament and the sacraments now being only two instead of the previous uh, seven. Um, are are at the heart of 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 their lives. Um, Calvin saw John Calvin in Geneva saw you know, the Lord's Supper as the supreme act of the community coming together to uh, you know to to be fed by you know the bread and and the wine. Uh, this was this was the feeding in the Word and the very heart of the community and 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 spiritual living. Yeah, I remember learning about uh, Calvin. Um, kind of an odd bit of history uh, that didn't he have control over the uh, schedule of when the Eucharist or when communion was going to be taking place in the various churches in Geneva? Or... Yes, yes. He, you know, he was highly influential. Although because some thought that it should not be celebrated very often, but Calvin yeah. wanted yeah. it as often as possible. Right? Yeah, it, it's absolutely right. Calvin was in favor of weekly communion. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that he didn't win that battle, uh, and uh, it was more likely to be four times a year, which right. in, in some traditions remains the norm. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and any time we're talking about the Reformed tradition, both of us fall in that one. Um, That's right, as, as Presbyterians, right? So um, sometimes, uh, if if people might hear critique, uh, we're sometimes uh, quicker to critique our own. <laughs> Yes, and <laughs> we might others, but yeah. uh, so that's good for people to know about that. Uh, I, I'm wondering as well about the break that happened in the Reformation. What might have been lost uh, in terms, like things that may have been termed, uh, uh, you know, this isn't something we're going to continue with. Um, what might have been lost in terms of the mystical or uh, with with that emphasis that came on the word. 
Yes. What may have been lost? I think there are, are various aspects um, that one could identify as diminished in the Reformation. Um, you know, you have uh, in the, the Catholic uh, tradition of the Middle Ages and continuing, obviously, afterwards, uh, the centrality of the host, uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation, where the bread and the wine truly become the body and blood of Christ. So there is a, a, an intense spirituality focused on the Mass and on on the elements, um, you know, the the body is raised and you know, visually broken before the, the people. Um, so the, I think you know one thing people, uh, you've already mentioned this, but one of the things people would think was uh, somewhat lost in the Reformation was a sense of the uh, holiness and sacred nature of the sacraments. Mm. Uh, in some parts of, of the Reformation, these are seen much more as memorials of what Christ did and less in themselves as a mystery. Mm -hmm. Although Calvin always spoke about the Lord's Supper as a mystery, but something of that language of mystery, uh, some people feel that in, in, you know, the Protestants with the emphasis on the word preached and, and heard, uh, and on a, 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 view of the sacraments, which was much more emphasizing its memorial aspect, um, lost something of that mystery and sacredness and also you know with the churches being many of the churches being in the reformed tradition being whitewashed uh, just a, a sense of 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 wonder yeah. Um, yeah. um you know i think i think there are counter arguments but this is this is something that you know people will will point to that uh you know the protestant tradition um although it emphasizes the the sovereignty of god and and the transcendence of of god um, in its worship and uh, has has less of a sense of of the you know the drama of of you know what existed before the Reformation. Yeah. What was the what was the logic behind kind of the whitewashing of churches or removal of art, um, removal of the you know not we're not going to venerate saints anymore. Yeah. Like what what is the logic that that was going on in that time? The, the very straightforward logic was that that uh, God is spirit and should be worshipped in spirit, and that uh, statues and art uh, are human creations and lead towards what the reformers would refer to as idolatrous uh, uh, practices. That you were actually venerating humans in in looking at the saints or even uh, by praying to Mary, uh, instead of focusing on you know the 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 life death and resurrection of of christ uh and of god uh who should be uh, according to the commandments uh should not be represented in images and and uh was uh therefore to be worshiped in spirit so you removed all of these things that could distract people but also lead them into what the reformers would say was false religion uh the very thing that uh you know the israelites had been chastised for in in the old testament right right and what's like what's your take on that like if uh like do you do you think we should still have to have, have no art in our churches or I think, I think, you know, it's, it, you know, all these things have to be seen in a context, the reformation, it's, it's message was making a strong break with, uh, 
practices that to which they objected very seriously. Now, of course, there were counter arguments from 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 the Catholic Church, but nevertheless, the reformers felt they needed to to bring the people away from that, and that required drastic action: the destruction of images, the forceful removal of them, the painting over of uh, uh, or the whitewashing of images on on the walls. Uh, so it belongs to a period in the Reformation that uh, was deeply concerned about the attachment of the people to external images and to what they saw as humans who could not in any way replace the uh, you know the powers of, of Christ I think you know and that and that view has remained strong particularly in the reformed tradition Lutherans have always taken a different um, attitude a more favorable attitude towards art and 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 uh, other forms of you know visual expression but in the reformed tradition that has obviously remained you know in 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 Scotland where I lived for for many many years you have the free church tradition which remains very very, you know, strongly attached to that uh, Calvinist idea of, of no images. Mm. I, I personally um, uh, feel, um, and I'm involved in a, in a church now that's, that's looking to engage some artists to mm. uh, do something with our, our uh, rather bleak and blank walls, uh, uh, because, you know, I, 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 I do believe that um, engaging the imagination in, in various ways is, is, is a healthy thing. And I don't, I think, you know, the, the, the Reformation arguments of people falling into idolatrous worship is probably something that is not really a modern concern in, in, in quite the same way. And, uh, you know, there are other forms of idolatry that uh, are, are very strong. I don't, I, I think images, you know, well done and imaginative images in a church of, of various forms can, can be, uh, can be uh, very inspirational. But I think in, as in all cases, it, it's what you make of them. If it's just art for art's sake, then it's, you know, a very little um, uh, importance. But if it's something that feeds into the life and worship of the church, I can, I can see it as, uh, uh, as helpful. We are a very visual culture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I completely agree. I think that the, art is i think re- really quite important mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time i kind of feel like sometimes um and and maybe the church kind of went through a bit of a phase that hopefully we're we're out of a bit but almost the the style of worship is almost treated as a as a an idol in some cases where we might say oh well we've got a great praise band mm-hmm. um or our organist is fantastic and our paid soloists, soloists are fantastic. Those are, can be really good things, but, but when we're placing those as the, as the focal point, I think that's where we start to get into tricky territory. If we're, if we're rather than worshiping through those things, the same yes. thing as a piece of art worshiping through that, where we're, where we're focusing only on that for its own sake. That's, I, I, yes. I, I mean, I think that's in some ways the, best way to reflect on the Reformation 500 years later, you know, what Luther was doing. We can't return to the 16th century and right. simply adopt views from a, a culture that's very dis- distant from our own. But the Reformation asks questions that, that are still highly relevant, such as, um, what are we worshipping? Uh, and, and how are we doing it? And is it uh, faithful to you know the principles we espouse, and so the, those questions you know the, the, I think one of the strengths of of the 
the Protestant tradition is that it's constantly requiring us to uh, be self-critical and, mm. and and ask those questions as to what actually are we are we doing and and uh, is there good sense for it and and just because we've always done this is not a compelling argument. Right, and that it's funny that lots of uh, good Protestant churches make that argument, but. Yeah. Uh, that that really wouldn't have held water uh, 500 years ago, would it? <laughs> like no, no, they're no, absolutely not doing that. That's that's yeah. uh, no reason for doing it at all. That's uh, right. <laughs> uh, uh, in fact, it's part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what what else was gained uh, in in the Reformation, and and particularly, I'm thinking about um, you know in terms of where it might have led in terms of people's personal spirituality. Like what what was gained for people. Um, by the by the reformation taking place yeah i mean it's often said that you know before the reformation people didn't have the bible and they did that that's simply not true people had exposure to scripture and bible and, and they were preached to in in many ways but you know one of the radicalness aspects or radical aspects of of luther's uh message was and and others followed this is that the word of god is um you know available to all and and that each person, each uh, you know man and woman, uh, has a direct relationship to the Word and a direct relationship to to God through the Word. And I think that's one of the most compelling messages of the Reformation is that you know it's not just about what you know clergy or priesthood do or mediate uh, to the, the people. The people themselves, in a way, are. Uh, empowered to their own direct uh, relationship to to God, and it it matters how you, uh, as as a, as a person, uh, engage with that word. It's not just um, how you know what the priest has done or how that has come to you through the the clergy. Uh, each person, I mean, Luther referred to it as the priesthood of all believers. Mm-hmm. Uh, each person. Um, uh, is in, is empowered by the you know the message of of the gospel and should take uh, responsibility for his or her spiritual life and not have somebody else do it for you. That's that's not actually really awesome, isn't it? When we when you think about it, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I think um, the, the idea of the priesthood of all believers, people would have, will have heard that if you've been in a church long enough, you probably heard that term. Yeah. Um, but it, but it really wasn't that that wasn't something that was really obviously it's in scripture so people would have heard it prior but it really becomes a major 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 emphasis for Luther yeah. is that right absolutely um, and it's you know Luther uh, coins the phrase in in a, in a manner but it becomes very much the hallmark of of the Reformation in the 16th century is that uh, lay people are uh, empowered to to their own spiritual lives. Now, that also raises other questions um, about, you know, who, how, how do you interpret the Bible when everybody seems to, you know, is empowered to have their own interpretation? Uh, what then becomes of the church and all sorts of other questions? But that, I think, is an energizing force of the, of the Reformation. Right. We're not going to try to solve that one. Uh, no, 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 I'm not going to solve that question ever. We'll just give that some time and see how it pans out. Uh, maybe with the next, the next uh, shakeup. Yeah. Um, uh, can you speak broadly a little bit about, you know, how do you understand Christian spirituality simply as rooted in tradition and history? Because you're a historian. Yeah. Um, 
uh, and a church historian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think lots of people today, especially might like, I'm not someone who loved the word spirituality. That's partly why I started the podcast is because mm-hmm. trying to re-engage that. But I think there's lots of people that will say things like I'm spiritual, but not religious, mm-hmm. or they like the idea of spirituality and they have kind of a constructive spirituality where they build their own thing made up of a whole bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd love to ask someone who's an expert in, in church history, sort of your thoughts on that and what the, the place of, of being rooted in tradition is for spirituality. Sure. I mean, we, we live in a society where people uh, are encouraged to be highly eclectic in, in the way in which they form things. Uh, also, uh, we live in uh, a society which is, you know, takes a very broad view of, of these questions. Uh, many people see themselves as, as you say, as engaged in spiritual lives that have little to do with either Christianity or uh, any other um, uh, formal uh, religion. That's 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 a that's a reality of of today. Yeah. In the in the um, you know traditionally uh, spirituality, it was also understood in 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 diverse patterns. But it was it was I think what it, it shared in common was this idea of it being uh, a discipline. Uh, particularly in the Protestant uh, tradition, uh, Catholics also have a very rich tradition of, of spirituality as well. But in the Protestant tradition of uh, 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 a discipline that's focused on regular, uh, rigorous engagement with the Word of God uh, as the source of you know spiritual uh, uh, activity of all sorts, whether it's prayer, worship, or uh, actions in the world the christian the christian life but for the you know the protestants that um uh, is only a valid spirituality insofar as that it is grounded uh in the word and that's i think what's distinctive about that tradition now whether you you follow the um you know anglican or you know, Presbyterian, Reformed, Lutheran, these all have different expressions. And uh, they all, in important ways, draw on the Christian tradition, going right back to the earliest days of the, of the Church Fathers. The wisdom of spiritual guidance is is very important. And, and you, you, when you study it, you see much of the same guidance is passed down through the, through the generations of discerning the work of the of the spirit uh, of obedience uh, to the word uh, of consistency in in life uh, with prayer and and worship, um, but constantly seeking I think is one of the distinctive aspects of of Christian spirituality is uh, to become ever more christ like that that one 's life is transformed through uh, spiritual activity through the guidance of of the spirit so there 's a kind of clear sense uh, following the model of of christ in 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 the bible there 's a clear sense of of what that spirituality should look like um, and uh, you know that as a you know being christ like um, could you know in 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 you know be seen as something other than uh, just simply personal fulfillment, uh, which in in our modern society has has many different expressions. But for Christians, I think there there is, however one understands it, there is an sort of objective principle of of you know what the 
that life should look like and of service of 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 worship and 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 prayer and you know uh, engagement with the uh with with the church mm, yeah i i wonder as well like i've noticed a a bit of a there seems to be a bit of a resurgence of people going back uh and looking at uh traditional liturgical forms um older prayers like even maybe pre-reformation prayers or mm-hmm. or things that are written in you know post-reformation but still old like mm-hmm. 1600s 1700s mm-hmm. um that seems to be uh, have gained some popularity in some circles mm-hmm. but at the same time it, I, I don't know if that's a reaction against like is it an influence of maybe evangelicalism that I, like th- there seems to be part of Protestantism that is uh, ha- has been somewhat anti-tradition as well, mm-hmm. um, and that's not just in evangelical mm-hmm. churches, but mm-hmm. in really I think lots of Protestant denominations mm-hmm. or non-denominational churches mm-hmm. are almost a way of expressing this. We're not really about tradition. We're mm-hmm. only about the Bible. We're just going to read the Bible and we're going to talk about it and probably take up an offering or leave your offering at the back. You know, sure, um, but sort of those two things seem to be happening at the same time. And um, I guess I worry about, and I've gone, I've gone through this in my own life, just sort of a phase of really not caring about tradition um, and then starting to come around to, Oh my goodness, there's, there's 2000 years of really smart people (laughs) (laughs) that I probably should be paying attention to. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know if you have some comment on that, uh, sort of some Um, of those developments. I, I you know I see this all the time when I I teach a, a survey of Western Christianity, um, mostly focusing on the late Middle Ages through to the 18th century, but uh, many of my students who are training for the ministry uh, will come into the class because they're required to do history, um, and they'll say I I don't really understand what this has to do with the ministry I want to do. Um, and, and, you know, they make a very similar discovery uh, quite quickly that uh, whether one looks at the disputes or the spiritual writings of, of early Christianity through the Middle Ages into the Reformation, thing, uh, these people encountered many of the same problems that we do, uh, and they had a lot of wise things to say about it. Uh, and, and in fact, there is a tradition of pastoral care, of theological reflection, of worship, uh, that's extremely rich. Um, and in the 16th century, the formers did the same thing. They they made use of the uh, medieval and early Christian sources. That in many cases, they had to adapt them to their own theological positions. But the, you know, they they didn't they didn't see the tradition as worthless or um, right. uh, something to be discarded. What they said was, tradition can't be determinative of what we do because that's the word. But it doesn't mean that you suddenly uh, throw away uh, 1,500 years of, of, of Christian wisdom and practice, uh, you know, they saw themselves as in continuity with it, but right. in, the, in the best possible form. So, uh, yeah, and, and you know, in, in, in our society, Christians or Protestants in particular have been, as you say, very divided about what to do with the past. You know, if it's an older practice, then, you know, we, it doesn't have any meaning for us now. But I think you're, you're right that a lot of people are saying, 
um, you know, in a society that's that's quite ruthless and and there's breakdowns of just about every time types of authority, and people are asking questions about you know where did our interpretation of the Bible come from? Where do our forms of worship come from? Uh, what does the past actually have to say to us? And they're discovering by reading broadly, you know. Catholic and Protestant writers, that there is an enormous, uh, 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 you know, repository of, of of wisdom and spiritual guidance that uh, speaks to today. Yeah. At the same time, as you also point out, there are people who uh, think that innovation is is always much better. Um, but even those people, I think, without even thinking about it, uh, don't. Uh, realize that they are drawing on practices from the past uh, in, in, in ways that uh, may not be uh, evident to them at, at the time. You know, not everything is, is brand new. Yeah, quite usually. It usually isn't, right? It rarely is, actually. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I even think about, um, like I know our, our own tradition, uh, we, we used to always have prayers of confession where mm-hmm. we're a feature of, mm-hmm. of, Presbyterian liturgy, Presbyterian worship, and most churches worship. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I knew there was a move for, to really not have prayers of confession for a while. And I think partly it was, well, this kind of makes people feel bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, we, we didn't have them for a little bit in our church and we reintroduced the prayer of confession. Mm-hmm. And I actually find that to be one of the most meaningful parts of the, the liturgy. Um, and part of it was just, you know, saying, well, let's reclaim this. This is part of who we are mm-hmm. and part of our, our tradition. Um, and then often on a Sunday, I'll say, uh, I'll let the people know we, this is, we're doing this, not, not for you to feel bad. Um, it's, it's in fact might be, might be the opposite of that. Um, but to try to reclaim some of those pieces as well, if you know, take a hard look at what tradition you're standing in and, and try to think, well, what has been valuable in the past that, that actually is likely valuable still today. Yeah, um, and have some meaning. So I, I think there's a lot to that. Well, I mean, as as you know, both in the Catholic and Protestant, but in the Protestant tradition, it's it's a significant preparation to hear the good news. Yeah, um, to realize that we are not wholly dependent on ourselves. Uh, there is a God who 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 reaches out, and and part of that reaching out, or a significant part of that reaching out, is is forgiveness and. Uh, um, uh, you know, a God who forgives uh, is a model for how we can live our lives. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to get to as well. I, I always ask about how uh, how you practice your own faith. What mm-hmm. what kinds of things do you do? Like, what does your personal spiritual practice look like or consist of? Um, yeah, <laughs> consistent is perhaps the. the, the but uh, um, you know, what is in, in, important to me is. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, constant engagement with scripture and reflection uh, on trying to um, live in ways that are uh, faithful to uh, the word. Um, uh, those are probably the, the things that are most conscious in, in, in what I'm trying to do. Uh, regular worship, um, uh, not always able to do uh, things like Bible study, but very much valuing times together with, with others, reflecting, not just on, 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 on Scripture, but on, on broader uh, questions. 
Um, so being together with other people is, is, is very important. Uh, obviously in, you know, that it's also important for the, you know, the family. Um, but I, I, I think at the heart of it, and this is probably, um, you know, characteristic of many forms of, of certainly in the Protestant tradition is, is trying to uh, engage directly, uh, on a regular basis, on a daily basis with, with the word. Mm. So is that just primarily just you're sitting down and reading the Bible? Like, is that? Sometimes that's just yeah. exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, uh, or, and, and then, and then re- reflecting on it in, right. in, in, you know, as, as, uh, and, you know, gathering together those things that, uh, that, you know, are, are, are important. You know, the, this we talked about earlier, prayer is, uh, for the reformers and, and continues to be the heart of, of, you know, Christian prayer, or Christian life. It's, 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 uh, as Calvin says, it's, it's, you know, when we, uh, bring ourselves to, before God and, and that is the tradition in, in Protestantism. And I think it still remains the lifeblood of it. And mm. that's what I, I try to engage Hmm. Okay. That's, that's really good. I was also, I also asked people if, if they're able to stay consistent or how, how do you stay consistent if, uh, if there's some inconsistencies? Um, I, or is that, or is that even something we should care about or worry about? I, you know, I think we're, we're, people are consistent and, and inconsistent in, in different things. I, I, I wouldn't make, I mean, obviously, consistency is is a good thing. Discipline of of I mean, that's always been an important part of the you know Christian spiritual tradition is is discipline, uh, the marking of e- of each day, the hours of the day. Those are those are spiritually uh, enriching practices. But I don't think people should become uh, dis- dispirited or disheartened uh, if if you know it, their practices are 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 more. Uh, erratic that's um you know it's always good when 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 you do it and you have the opportunity and it's not meant to make you feel badly about it exactly yeah um that's kind of a refrain that we that i keep hearing with a lot of these interviews regardless of who i'm talking to whether it's professors or uh pastors or artists i've talked mm-hmm. to a, a number of artists as well but that's a common refrain is that there are some things that are very helpful very helpful forms for you to follow um and then let's have grace with ourselves yeah. because God is gracious with us. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that's okay. And some people as well, their life just does not look like a regular daily, daily no. pattern and that's no. fine. Um, and, so yeah. we want people to hear that. And there are many people, I mean, this is well known in the spiritual tradition. People go through periods where they find it extremely difficult to pray. Mm. Um, and you know, the, in the spiritual tradition, this is often referred to as kind of, a period of uh, aridness, you know, a, a desert time. It has many different metaphors uh, mm-hmm. when people are feeling uh, low or even depressed uh, or, uh, you know, struggling with other uh, issues. And uh, it's not easy to exercise those spiritual disciplines. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so, you know, our, our lives are, are, are complex um, and, and, you know, particularly in the way in which we lead them now but uh i think people should be encouraged rather than made to feel like they're failing some tests yeah exactly i think that's great um do you have time for just one one or two more sure. questions okay sure. um it, now i'll just i'll go off script but uh, your your main uh 
your main focus is is Calvin, is that right? Is that, uh, yeah, the Reformation broadly, but recently I've had a lot to do with Calvin. The last couple of books I see yeah. uh, that you've written have been been on Calvin. So I I wonder if I can just ask you. This is maybe not even on the top of this podcast, but uh, Calvin in in some circles people just think he you know there's God and Jesus and maybe the Holy Spirit off to the side, but really Calvin. Um, is there with them, you know, um, and then in other circles, Calvin is is really quite far from where God and Jesus are, you know, like, sure. he, he's sort of vilified and also uh, by some circles and just held up as as next to God and others. So, but I kind of want to ask, like, what is what is Calvin's gift to the, to the church or to or to believers? Like, what, uh, what would you say uh, is positive? Or what do people what should people learn about Calvin or from Calvin? Sure. Uh, I think there's a lot of things. Uh, uh, they should are, read, they can read your books too. They can to find that they out, can. but I can, I can make a pitch for that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, Calvin was a human being, first of all, uh, right. you know, he had strengths and weaknesses. His talents were considerable. He had, um, uh, other aspects of his character, which, which were problematic. He, you know, by his own admission, he had a terrible, uh, uh, sense of anger at times. He could be very harsh with people. Um, he could be very critical. Uh, but, you know, what is, but he was also uh, an amazing writer. He was an amazing theologian who read very deeply in the tradition from, you know, from the, the church fathers through the medievals to his own day. Uh, he uh, was very disciplined in his spiritual practices. He was very disciplined in his study. Um, but what is his gift? Calvin was himself an exile. This is what, what I would say if you had to put your finger on, on you know, one or two points. He was himself an exile. He had to leave his native France. He lived in Geneva much of his uh, career, a place he always found very difficult, and they found him very difficult. It was not a good relationship. But all sorts of people left France and came to Geneva so that the city was swelled with refugees. And this is a, a theme we can think about in our in our own time, is it's very, very much uh, you know, a pressing uh, issue. But Calvin preached largely to refugees people who had lost everything um, why were why were people fleeing france at that time because uh, france remained catholic there was persecution um and it was illegal to be uh, mm. uh to profess you know the protestant uh faith okay. so they they faced either a possibility of being put to death martyrdom or uh picking up their lives and moving them insofar as they could. So the city of Geneva was, uh, like many cities in, in um, Protestant cities, was full of uh, refugees. Calvin preached to, to them. He also, his writings went out to uh, 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 communities across Europe and then transatlantically, where people uh, were suffering uh, persecution. And I think his particular gift was to articulate very clearly that no matter how difficult your circumstances are, no matter how much you are being persecuted and suffering for the faith, uh, God is is with you. God is not distant. God is in relationship to you. Uh, Calvin spoke in terms of, of the covenant. Um, God's promises are forever. And um, no matter how difficult your human situation is, um, you uh, you have a God who never... Uh, never abandons you. And that proved to be uh, an extremely compelling message. I mean, Calvin's writing sold uh, amazingly in in his own time. He was a voice that was very popular because he spoke to people who were suffering um, because his own experience had been 
very difficult. He he was well placed to do that, um, and his uh, you know assurance that that uh, God is is with you. You know, you know in in his commentary on Daniel, you know he says God goes with Daniel into prison. You know that the, there is a, not a distant God that we might always associate with Calvin, but a very intimate one, and that's a message people heard. Um, we tend to focus on other aspects of, of Calvin's theology and see him as very judgmental. Um, but you know, I think, you know, Calvin was extremely pastoral in his, his, his writings, and that resonated with people uh, a great deal, and, and that's why he became so, so prominent. And now, now I got to ask about the the problematic uh, theology <laughs> of, uh, as well. But uh, um, so, what do we do with with some of that, some of the problems? If uh, if if people are seeing Calvin as as judgmental or having kind of a judgmental theology, sure. Um, well, of course, yeah. I mean, at the heart of that controversy is is his doctrine of predestination, yeah. uh, which is not is not original to him. It's often forgotten that Luther, the other reformers also were adamant that um, God had elected those who would be uh, saved. Uh, this comes in part from their reading of uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. They think it's in scripture. Augustine from the early church, uh, Thomas Aquinas in the medieval church. The, the doctrine of election was not new to Calvin. What was perhaps somewhat new to Calvin was his emphasis on what he called double predestination, that God both elects those who will be saved, but also chooses those who will uh, go to perdition. And this outraged many people who thought that Calvin was um, making God into this uh, fierce judge who seemed to derive pleasure from sending people to hell. Um, and so that it was a kind of cold uh, and, and judgmental God that many people associated with Calvin's, you know, a, a God who was a reflection of Calvin's own personality. Mm. Um, and, and a God who in many ways was the cause of evil, made people bad so that they would, they would, uh, mm. Uh, you know, be punished. And, and many people found that even in Calvin's own day, distasteful. And it's, you know, most people you, who have an awareness of Calvin, it's often the first thing they will mention right. uh, when, when referring to him. It's that, you know, Calvin and, and, and predestination. Calvin saw it very differently. He saw it as uh, uh, assurance in scripture that whatever we do, we cannot lose uh, God's love, uh, and that those who reject God um, will will have the, the consequences of their own action. But he was constantly seeking to assure people that this was good news, uh, because God is forever is forever with us. God has 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 chosen us, and and uh, um, you know, and and that promise is forever. Mm. Yeah, it's a hard uh, one. It's a very hard, it's really hard doctrine. It's a very hard and very hard for the modern mind to uh, accept. But um, one of the things about thinking about the Reformation is we have to remind ourselves that uh, uh, many people found that good news. Hmm. Yeah, but I think it's also good to know that there's many people who reacted strongly against that as well. Mm -hmm. That uh, you know there wasn't this. I think when we look back in history, this is a, this happens a lot where we think there's just a unified movement. So there, you know, something like the Reformation. Oh, there was Catholicism, there was the Church, and then there was the Reformation, and now we could speak about Catholics and Protestants, and yeah. and and away you go. But I think, yeah. you know, the reformers, a lot of them really disagreed with 
with one another about a whole bunch of key points and we still do and we Um, still do but but that can be confusing i think for people as well as to as how do you navigate that um but yeah i've i've heard a lot about calvin and and had a guest on the podcast recently as well who was uh um you know had some real trouble with calvin and 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 calvinism in particular Mm -hmm. um and and trying to talk about well what does it mean to speak of a loving god who is completely loving um but one of the comments that he had made um, was that, that one of the troubles is, is that when we approach God only with systematic theology, mm-hmm. we, we can get ourselves into, we can almost paint ourselves into corners. Yeah. Um, we get into trouble if we're almost too logical about things to try to work out exactly how it works. So he was kind of seeing Calvin in that light saying, yeah. there's a pastoral side, which you're speaking of, which I think is helpful. Mm-hmm. But there's also the, the, I think he had a really logical way of coming at theology and so so coming at it systematically can sometimes be problematic because you get yourself into these tricky situations yeah 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 it it does and it's you know it's it's an important point calvin calvin would respond for one thing he he rarely used the word theology because he said it sounded abstract um for him uh, uh what he did what he saw himself as doing was uh, simply uh, explaining the word of God. Uh, and he saw uh, theology not as, as a kind of, uh, you know, head game, but rather uh, having only in significance insofar as it was the revealed and preached word uh, mm-hmm. then celebrated in the sacrament. Calvin's, Calvin's view of, 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 you know, what he was trying to do in his institutes of the Christian religion, in his sermons, in his biblical commentaries, was simply to try to help people to understand what the Bible says. Now, that is, you know, it was very much formulated a way he, he saw it, but um, that was, that's what he saw himself doing. He's like Luther, above all, he saw himself as a preacher, not as an academic. Right. I, I think as well, something that I find useful as a Presbyterian minister is to remember you know, just because Calvin said one thing or said many things, that does not mean that that is where the tradition that has come from Calvin or from Luther, that doesn't mean that's where we've ended up. No, um, that there's that you, you can look at what Calvin did and you can look at what Calvinism started and you can look at neo-Calvinism if you like, but that's, there's a broad, broad tradition of understanding of how we look at these things. Absolutely. Um, and Calvin would have been, I mean, Calvin was buried in an unmarked grave because he didn't want any, he didn't want a kind of uh, cult worship of who he was. He was very clear that after him, others would have to interpret script, uh, scripture and theology for their own time. He, really? you know, he, he, he never thought that his institutes, which is his major work, would be um, forever the statement on theology. He saw it as... Um, directed to his own age, right. he knew that others would come and and not totally rewrite theology because theology for him was you know faithfulness to the Word of God that that was the only legitimate form of theology, but that would be, have to be articulated in new ways as mm-hmm. society changed as conditions changed so would yeah. you say that Calvin was in some ways like he might not use this term but in some ways a pastoral theologian like he 's yeah, he's I think speaking to his own people and his own circumstance, and yeah, and he was speaking to a, a wider audience through the printing of his books. Sure. But you know, he had a high view of what he did. There's no doubt about that. He he knew who he was, but he you know he was very very clear that you know he should not be um, 
uh, you know, venerated as the f- the figure of a movement, uh, the and that you know that in the the future generations see him as the only voice of theology, the, and that's why I I tend to refer to it as the Reformed tradition rather than Calvinism. Right. Uh, Calvinism is, is is a term that Calvin object, objected to in his own day because he thought it put the emphasis on him instead mm-hmm. of uh, on the word. Um, but the Reformed tradition is a diverse movement, which, you know, has its own arguments within the family about a whole range of issues. Um, but it's, it embraces many different voices and many different interpretations of scriptures as it continues to do. Um, and, and, you know, you can say that there are strong roots in Calvin, but there have been many people uh, uh, since then, most famously in the 20th century, probably Karl Barth and, mm-hmm. uh, and others. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's just fascinating to me. I wish we could talk longer. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, but maybe you can tell people um, just where, like, what are the titles of, of, of the, of the couple of books? I know the two, the two Calvin ones, maybe people might be most interested now, if they've made it this far in the interview, they, they'll be yes. interested to hear. <laughs> They're still with us. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, one is simply called Calvin. It came out in 2009. It yeah. is a biography uh, with uh, published by Yale University Press, it's meant to be uh, what they call a trade book. So it, it you know, oh, uh, written for an audience that's beyond simply you know the universities and and theological yeah. colleges. It's it's meant to be, at least I hoped it would be. Um, it's accessible. Yeah. People can read a book. They could people yeah. can read. Yeah. Uh, so that came out in two thousand and nine, and a similar book uh, in a sense, uh, two thousand and sixteen, was uh, on Calvin's major work, uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, um, and a kind of biography of the book. It's not only about the book itself, but how it has been variously interpreted right through to. Um, YouTube, yeah. From when I, I haven't, uh, I I've haven't had a chance to read them, but I I did look up the the latest one, the one on the institutes themselves, and that looked really really interesting. Um, must have been a fascinating project to work on. Yeah, uh, I learned I learned a huge amount. <laughs> yeah, and and I think that really relates to some of the last things you were saying, just about you know what, how have the the institutes in particular been used, and sort of how has it been transmitted and and throughout yeah. history, what. Yeah. You know, how, what has the response been? Um, so that might be really useful for people as well, if they're wondering about uh, sort of the impact or influence of, of Calvin in the, in the church and in our thinking. Sure. I mean, a good example is uh, in South Africa, where Calvin on the one side was used to theologically defend apartheid. Um, as, and then others, including uh, uh, Dr. Alan Bosak, uh, who was a, a leader of the anti-apartheid movement, uh, related to us how reading Calvin brought him to a kind of theology of freedom. So, in mm-hmm. fact, a diametrically imposed reading of Calvin from the one that uh, was closely associated with an oppressive system. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? Um, okay, one last question. Uh, sure. What's your favorite Canadian city? <laughs> okay there's a loaded question um well of course i have enormous affection for winnipeg because that's, yes that's 
where I grew up. So yeah, I, we we found out as as we as we set up this interview that uh, that Bruce is uh, originally from Winnipeg, my hometown. So that's why I'm asking the question. Yeah. Really. So and and I have and uh, I continue to support the Jets. Uh, ah, so, there we go. Yeah. Um, that uh, so I I but and I still have family in Winnipeg, though I don't get back very often. Um, I I, lo- I love a city that I lived in for for six years, uh, which is Halifax in Nova Scotia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I loved being by the ocean, having grown up in the prairies. Uh, it was a great revelation to me to live by the ocean. It's a wonderful city with a great deal of character. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd have to rate it pretty highly as well. Okay, well, we'll take that. We'll take Halifax. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and we also learned, and uh, this will be kind of a shout out to my to some of the people in my own congregation. You actually preached for a summer at mm-hmm. St Andrew's Presbyterian mm-hmm. Church I in did. Winnipeg. Many years ago, yeah. yeah. So that was that. That was while you were a student, isn't it? Yeah, I, I was a student at that point at Knox College in Toronto, and uh, they were extremely warm. They put up with my preaching uh, very graciously, and uh, I have very fond memories of that summer. Right. So there might be some people in my congregation. Uh, our, our congregation is an amalgamation that yes. took St. Andrews and, and Trinity Church together, put them together. So we may have some people listening today from my church. If, oh, uh, that's wonderful. That may have still may have been around at that time. I don't may know, but yeah. they'll at least like to know that uh, that we did uh, acknowledged it on air anyway. Okay. <laughs> so, anyway, I really appreciate this uh, and taking the time for me today and uh, and the listeners. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much. I hope you found today's episode helpful. Don't forget to check out the show notes at spiritualityfornormalpeople.com. There you can sign up to get the free short guide called Six Tips to Get Consistent in Connecting with God. And when you do that, you'll also get the latest updates and news from the blog, plus book announcements and anything else I may be working on. So head over to spiritualityfornormalpeople.com and sign up. Thanks for listening today and take care.